This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker Daily. I'm Jelena Sofronievich. An artist is someone who produces things that people don't need to have. So said Andy Warhol, an artist well known for his obsession with fame and celebrity. And in May, his shot Sage Blue Marilyn sold at Christie's for a record £158 million, making it the most expensive painting of the 20th century. But Blue Marilyn is merely the biggest wave in an international tsunami of art sales. The global art market reached record levels in 2021, with over £2 sold in two weeks in New York alone. So as Art Basel, an international set of simultaneous art fairs, opens today, who decides the value of any individual artwork? And can we make the art world less murky and open to all? To discuss all of this, I'm delighted to be joined by two special guests. Mary Alice Stack is Chief Executive at Creative United, a UK social enterprise that runs the own art scheme. Hello, Mary Alice. Hi. And Erling Kager is a polar explorer, author, publisher and former politician. He is the author of A Poor Collector's Guide to Buying Great Art. Hello, Erling. Hi there. So, Erling, was Warhol right? What gives art its value? Yeah, I think in general, uh, Andy Warhol was right in terms of art and the art uh, market. And, uh, and today we see the results as the world's most expensive uh, artist. And Mary Alice, who decides the market price of individual artworks? Is it the buyers? Is it the galleries themselves? Is it the fairs? Well, the, the price of an individual work of art, of course, initially has to start with the artists themselves. And over time, typically an artist will become known by a gallery. They may start with one gallery and transfer to another over time. They may begin to develop a, a public visibility that, that will allow them to understand the demand for their work. And so prices are, it's a very difficult area to analyse, but essentially you've got to start off with the maker. Then a gallerist or a, or a dealer might decide on behalf of that artist, how to position that work, how to price it, and to, to, to seek to make sales. But it's really not an easy thing to analyse who's controlling what at, at any given time, because it's all very dependent on how the artist sees themselves, how they're seen by the public, how the market has uh, responded to that work over time. So it's, it's, it's quite a difficult one to analyse. Mm, it makes me think of the likes of Francis Bacon and Banksy both destroying their own artworks at their times. But what kind of things determine the price? Is it to do with the size or the number of the certain kind of painting? 
Yes, it can be. But you know what's interesting, I think, with the art is that it definitely does not relate to the cost of making the art piece. Sometimes it does, but in general, to make art is very reasonable. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, it's a little bit like perfume. It doesn't cost anything to make, but you can get fantastic prices. But of course, you know, you need to, to break in the art market. You need a great gallerist, that's for sure. And then you need to be shown eventually at museums and other, other institutions. And as an artist, you need confirmation all the time, or the market needs confirmation absolutely all the time. So that's why you see quite often artists have this sudden rise. You know, we talk about Basel. Many artists here are experiencing suddenly lots of people would like to buy a few pieces by one particular artist. And this kind of success maybe lasts for half a year or two or three or four years, mm. and then it's over. And then the market needs a reconfirmation of the same artist. And that usually doesn't happen. So, you know, if I had been an artist, I would have been super careful about my market position and super careful about not being hyped. Mm. But of course, artists in general, like you now we talk about the art market, but art in general is not a part of the art market. Mm. Now, before Warhol, the record was set in 2015 when Pablo Picasso's Les Femmes d'Alger sold for $115 million. At the time, the auctioneer predicted that the record would last for at least a decade, but that was broken, obviously, just seven years later. Has the art market accelerated in recent years? And if so, why? It certainly has, and it's because so many more people have so much more money. And when you eventually have kind of everything you need in life, and quite a few of these people, of course, they also end up having fantastic summer houses, winter houses, yachts, etc. And then you need, you know, to spend your money on something even, you know, something even more you don't need, really need. And then you start to buy art. It's kind of a conspicuous consumption that you also show everybody else that you can splash so much money on such a piece. So I think it's, you know, it's investment, but I also think it's very much about shoving off. Mm. And it's also important to be aware that many of these people who buy art at in that league, $100 million, they have usually not worked for their money, but, you know, quite often it's people who have, kind of, you know, ripped off their own people like oligarchs, etc., and different nations who are spending this, you know, this this amount of money on art. The problem with focusing on that very high-end part of the market is it really isn't representative of normal people at all mm. <laughs> or, or the vast majority of artists who are who are who are practicing so it's it, it's a distortion it's what it's the things that make the headlines but in fact those mega sales are so far out of the 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 kind of scope of of the vast majority of people it, it gives a false impression that buying and collecting mm. art needs to be the the exclusive pastime of of, of super wealthy people and uh, and very elitist and only only for those who are within certain circles now it's not to say that those those elite circles don't exist of course they do but um you know part of what my 
job is at, at Creative United and the, and the role of our own art scheme is to stop people thinking about it like that and to say, look, there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of artists producing fantastic work, which is not in the many millions of pounds. It can be really very, very modest. And the price of a piece of work isn't necessarily reflective of its quality. It's reflective of the market, mm. which is constructed in a very opaque and, and, and obscure way that is not easily understood or accessible to the majority of people. Absolutely. We'll come on and talk more about accessibility in art in a little while. But demand for 20th century contemporary art, I've noticed, has never been higher in particular. Why do you think that is? Is it in part to do with COVID, perhaps the rise of cryptocurrencies and other ways of purchasing that art? I think it has to do with uh, uh, the stock markets have been you know, going up dramatically in value. Real estate has gone up in value. Interest rates are super low. So this you know, is reflected very much in the art market. But then again, today we see interest rates are going up. Uh, the stock markets are very unstable. It has be- become absolutely insane in the auction market. And I think even, you know, the top auction houses are a little bit worried now. It has gone too far, too soon. Mm. So, you know, it, it, it may turn around again and people will have a hard time getting rid of all this super expensive art. But then again, it's not bad news because fantastic art will be made in, you know, it's being made every day. And, uh, and uh, as, as it was said, most art is quite reasonable. And it should be. Mary Alice, Christie's chairman Alex Rotter proclaimed that he was very proud of having sold the Andy Warhol painting, calling it a big achievement. I thought that seemed a bit strange given that they've not made anything in the process of this except for money. And I noticed that Warhol's final price includes about $25 million in fees. Can you Mm. tell me who are the key players who are involved in the sale of an artwork and a little bit more about commission? Well, um, as I said, it, it, it depends very much on the on which strata of the art market you're looking at. But at the level at which uh, these auction houses are working, you know, they will tend only to take into a sale an artist whose work has already got an established market price. And so they're, 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 they're um, competing against themselves, the auction houses. And the reason why Christie's are so proud of themselves is because they, they've delivered an exceptional return, which tells them and their clients that they're the top of the tree right now you know it's it's a self that that it's self aggrandizement because it's in their interest to stay at the most you know at the epicenter of the market that they're trying to drive so in the auction space that that that's the case but in terms of the construction of the market who gets what the artist themselves, obviously, with with Warhol's been been dead a very long time. He's not he's not necessarily the the recipient of any of those the, those proceeds. Um, but it'll be the person who has the title to that piece, the the owner. It'll be the auction house. It may be that there are intermediaries involved as well. So it it really depends on where the origin of the work is. If it's a primary sale, it's being sold for the first time then obviously uh, the artist gets um, the, the, the bulk of the sales proceeds, usually around 50% at least. And then if the work moves on and it sells a, a second or third or fourth time, there is something called the artist resale right, which gives a, a living artist or the estate of that artist um, a percentage of the um, of the proceeds in a secondary or, or, or tertiary sale. But it's, it's, it's a little bit difficult to, to, to make a, a standard assessment of what all sales look like because it, it just depends on the particular circumstances. 
Mm. And just sticking with the auction then, in 1958, the Goldschmidt sale attracted great media attention. One journalist at the time reported that as prices soared, it was sometimes hard to remember that the whole process had anything to do with art. Do you think that art has become more of a financial commodity over time? Or do you think it has always been appropriated as a financial commodity, Mary Alice? Um, it's definitely become a commodity. In, I mean, contemporary art particularly, I think if you go back 30 years or, or more, contem- the contemporary market wasn't anywhere near as strong as it is now. That's that's a, a phenomenon that's occurred in, in, in the recent decades. And I think it's part, partially driven by contemporary artists themselves becoming more visible and, the, and, and contemporary collectors. I'm thinking particularly, you know, people like Charles Saatchi, you know, back, back in the early 90s, his kind of, his move to start collecting the, the YBA class of artists, you know, that kind of put it in people's minds that this was something, uh, this, this was an emerging market. Um, and it's continued to build. And I, th- I think you're, you know, what you mentioned about NFTs, whether that is kind of popularizing art as a as a commodity driven by people who aren't necessarily perhaps that perhaps that interested in the art itself but but they're but they're interested in what that what that commodity might do over time and it's it's um yeah i mean i th- i think perhaps it's always been within the DNA of collectors to be acquiring things that will retain their value but the the escalation in the market is definitely a change in a change in driver where I think people are, it's not about connoisseurship and um, the appreciation of the object so much as the understanding of what the price of that object might do over time. Yeah, I, I very much agree with uh, Mary Alice. And I think it's like now we're not talking about art, we talk about the art market. And of course, uh, you know, the auction houses, etc. It's all about the art market. NFTs are, are all about the art market. It's not really about the art. I noticed that the American record was set by John Michel Basquiat for £90 million for a sale at Sotheby's in 2017. How are social inequalities around things like race and gender and ability reflected in the art market? Do you think we can take an intersectional look at pricing art? I think, you know, it's it's a good question because until recently, female art or art made by by women were absolutely underpriced and also in terms of color it was under uh, underpriced that the market preferred white men usually from a fairly privileged background today it has changed mm. dramatically so uh, when i started buying art collecting art i bought a lot of uh, art made by women because it was you get more quality for your money today it's about to change uh, fortunately of course so today you see all you know, institutions and also collectors are kind of chasing all this uh, art, art made by artists that they kind of were avoiding until recently. So the market in this sense has dramatically changed. And also not only the market, because also the museums and the market quite often goes hand in hand. So what's getting expensive, the museums also need to show. So... Uh, so um, yeah, it's a part of, part of the same thing. Both European museums and American museums are now competing of for art that they didn't want to buy at all ten years ago. Does the value of art change in different contexts? Then, how does the monetary value change when it moves from a commercial gallery to a museum or a public institution, for instance? Again, you know, as I said, every artist needs confirmations throughout his or her career. 
And then you need to be shown at museums, and eventually you need to have be shown at great museums and have retrospective shows. So, and that of course increases the value of uh, of of, um, of all the art, and uh, that's why it's so mm. you know tightly knitted uh, relationships between galleries and museum curators, and that's why of course. All the galleries are paying all these airfares and dinners for curators to keep them, you know, within. Mary Alice, you mentioned about access earlier. How does our media focus on these big sales and artists reinforce cultural exclusivity and this division between high and low culture? Yeah, I mean, it's it is a problem because uh, I mean, the media, as we all know, is a very powerful mechanism through which certain perspectives can be amplified and certain perceptions of value can be presented with, not necessarily with with the balancing aspects of uh, but what's what else is going on i think it's a real problem that that people's understanding of what 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 is of value in the contemporary art space is perhaps what they've heard through the media. And what we try and do at Creative United is to try and give people access points so that they can develop their own understanding and their own um their own route through through the market that they, they can define that for themselves rather than relying on what's reported. Um, so I, th- I think it is a problem that the the media takes what is sensational and and presents that you know the the thing that sold the most or the biggest or the the you know the, the the extremes of the market are what are reported and the novelties of the market are reported rather than the things that really define the market and define artists you know why do people become artists and what is it they do day to day is not necessarily what is reported in the media although it is it is you know it does create an opportunity for engagement and interest so i'm not saying it's all bad but I think people need to be able to see it in the everyday as well as in the exceptional. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I've been to a few art fairs in the run-up to this recording, and they're huge and overwhelming and very seductive if you're the kind of person that has the money to be purchasing these artworks. Do you think, Mary Alice, that people always know what they're looking for when they go to these kind of spaces? Do they know what they're looking for? Probably not. I mean, I I would have to say, I I think an art fair is, in my experience, probably the least best place to make a decision about buying something. It's convenient because everything's in one place or a huge, you're seeing a huge amount of work at the same time. So it has a sort of convenience factor about it. But really, when you're making decisions about 
buying a piece of work, the, the, the noise and the confusion of everything else that's going on around you is not helpful to really connecting with the individual piece, I'd suggest. But, you know, they have, art fairs have done an amazing thing. Again, over the last 20 years, you know, the emergence of the art fair as the primary um, uh, point of connection between collectors, gallerists, curators and artists, it has done a hugely important thing in terms of bringing the market to the people um, in a in a much more condensed and 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 uh, very dynamic and exciting way. So they're quite they can be quite thrilling, but it can also be very very overwhelming. And I wouldn't necessarily say that would be the place that I would mm. want to make my purchase decision. But I might want to use it as a place to discover some interesting new artists and the, and their current work. I appreciate that. And also, it's interesting because commercial galleries are free spaces to go to, but they remain very exclusive and intimidating and in some cases, practically just quite hard to access because they can be easy to pass by in the street. How can we make it more common for people to buy and own art and access it in the first place? I think it's getting more and more common. Like uh, on the few decades, uh, it has been Art has become much more integrated in daily life. You see it in public uh, public places. You see it in offices. Uh, when I grew up uh, here in Norway, we all had posters on over walls, and then we started uh, lithographs and more uh, exclusive prints. And now more and more people are starting to have some paintings. And so I think you know it's it's I don't I don't think we have ever seen the, in the history that art has been so much integrated in daily life of so many people and i think that uh, trend will uh, will keep on uh, developing i'm not as i said i'm not so certain about the art market for the years to come but i think more and more people would like to have uh, beautiful maybe challenging art at their homes that they can uh, that they can grow with not in the sense that Everybody will have it, but I think more and more people will uh, appreciate uh, interesting art. I think there was a time when galleries really did feel like the preserve of, 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 of the moneyed classes. It was really quite difficult to, to cross the threshold if you didn't feel confident to do so. You might not feel very welcome. There might be a sense of, you know, if, if you need to ask the price, you can't afford it. So pricing transparency has been a big, big issue for quite a long time where we've certainly been advocating that in order to be open and accessible to people, you must be clear about how much something is, is, is being offered for. Otherwise, people can't judge for themselves whether this is a a space that's you know an opportunity that's right for them or they they need to be able to have the information Mm. that they need to make informed choices so I think that sense of the unwelcoming gallery has become much less prevalent and my experience is that more often than not now you know galleries are really wanting to bring diverse audiences in they're wanting to show more diverse artists they're interested in in a in a dialogue with 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 the public about contemporary work and why why it's interesting and important what what those artists are trying to say through their work and you know that dialogue is is always the starting point i think what gallerists and artists probably don't enjoy so much is is you know if people aren't willing to have to have to ask the questions and have the conversation then kind of where do you go with that because people they're not just in the business of selling product you know it's it's not just product so they really want to be able to feel confident that the prospective buyer is really understanding of the value in that work beyond the price itself because when you sell a piece of art to a 
to to uh, a buyer, they become the custodian of that piece of work forever or until they they sell it on so that placement of that work into the hands of a custodian of the buyer is a really important thing and I think people maybe sometimes don't realize that 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 when they say they want to buy a piece of work they're actually taking on the responsibility for that piece in a funny way it's not a throwaway thing it's it's, it's something that they should be looking after and, and cherishing and enjoying for the long term and, and that's part of the process that a gallery is there to support and an artist wants to know that their work is is going to uh, going to a good home if you like mm. I understand that. I think that there are still so few galleries that will show their prices. And I myself feel quite conflicted about this because on the one hand, showing a price would improve public knowledge and access to the value of art. On the other hand, you could argue that it's just reinforcing consumerism and this almost acquisitional approach to art that ignores its intrinsic value. How does pricing impact smaller artists and galleries, Mary Alice? Well, look, I mean, a gallery is there on the whole to sell work. Let's not pretend it isn't there to sell work. That's, that is the business model is that they select the artist, they present the work, they help pr- promote that artist and build their reputation. And sales is all part of that process. Museums aren't there to sell work. They're there to present work in a non-commercial environment. And they too have an equally important role in helping us understand the value of, of, of the visual arts and culture in, in society. But being transparent about pricing, if you are in the business of selling art, is really important. And uh, whether you're selling luxury goods, Mm. whether you're selling, you know, uh, uh, items that are relatively cheap, no matter what it is, a customer has the right to, to the information they need to make informed choices. And, you know, there is this tension, we talked about it earlier, between the market as distinct from the art itself. What we're trying to do here is to create a society of customers who understand the intrinsic value and are also prepared to put their money on the table for a piece of work that they love because they they want to acquire it and to have it and enjoy it for themselves for the long term. So who is buying and collecting art in the UK at the moment? Has that changed over time? I mean, it absolutely has. I mean, I've, I've been working on the Own Art Scheme for nearly 20 years now, and uh, we've definitely seen the diversity of, of buyers and collectors changing. More people who perhaps have never bought a piece of art before are reporting that they're using the scheme. About a quarter of the buyers that we support each year say they've never bought a piece of art before. So that's that's you know 2,000, 3,000 and, and more people who are joining the art market. So I think it is diversifying. I mean, Erling, I don't know what it's like in, in Norway. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's diversifying there as well. Yes, fortunately, we have the same experience in Norway. And I think, you know, that goes all over the Western world and also, also beyond, fortunately. Do you think that art holds its value in that sense? Is it, a, is it really a safer investment than housing, for instance, which it's often compared to as an asset when it comes to things like inflation? I think it's certainly not a good investment financial-wise in general. It's most art, as soon as you buy it, as Mary Alice said, the artists get like 50%. So when you walk out to the gallery and bought something for £2,000 in one way, it's worth £1,000. So this idea that art should increase in value is pretty naive. As we have talked about the art market, you know, the top end, of course, 
that could be investment wise could be could be a good idea but in general art does not increase in value it's rather the opposite it's really hard to sell art it's kind of easy to buy and hard to sell Mm. And Erling, one immediate impact of the crisis in Ukraine was to draw attention to Russian money in London, and in particular, the art market as a means of dirty money laundering. Are those kind of instances quite common, or are they something that's limited to the sort of elite world of art? I wouldn't say it's common, but of course, at the high end, the most expensive end of the market, if it's not common, it kind of happens all the time. And of course, in the whole market with like Picassos, etc., it's a great way to do money laundering. But, you know, at the other end of the market, like £10,000, £2,000, £100,000, it's not so much of that stuff. But of course, in NFTs, it's for sure a lot of money laundering. Mm. So we can still picture that traditional auction room we were talking about earlier with these self-congratulatory collectors when they applaud themselves when a piece sells for a high price. But do you think that's where most sales are happening now? You mentioned NFTs, for instance. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think the most expensive art is being sold, like you mentioned, the auctions in, in New York, not, not just in May. But the kind of the Olympic Games of, uh, of selling art is going on in Art uh, Basel today. That's where all the top gallerists and also all the top collectors and quite a lot of the most expensive art is being sold this year. So uh, for, for most people, for most collectors, uh, this week is uh, super important. And do you think that buying art in these sort of weeks contributes to its commodification, much like buying property as a second home for rental rather than for use as housing or as an asset? Well, you know, the, like as well, as Erling has explained, when people have huge amounts of wealth and they look around to see where they're going to put their money and they look for the most stable investments and the, and the investments that give the, the greatest returns. And certainly in the art market, you can see the accelerating prices and consistently accelerating prices in some cases is very, is very attractive. But the, Opposite is also true, as Erling has also explained, that a lot of artists who are maybe not the kind of blockbuster names, you know, not not Andy Warhol, but artists who are hoping to to reach that status over time, it's a highly risky investment as well. You put your money into an artist who's not yet kind of become part of the established canon, and you could well end up with with a, a work that is um, you can't achieve the same price for when it when it resells. And art often also, you know, there's a very dangerous manoeuvre that people make where they try and sell the, the flip the, the work too quickly. You know, you, you acquire it and then it reappears on the market again within two to three years. And, and unfortunately, that can really destroy the the, the the reputation of an artist where works are represented too quickly. So it's a really long term strategy to acquire work for investment. It's not a world that I'm in. Sadly, I'm not I'm not buying works for investment. I'm buying them because I care about the work I really love the work and I'm not intending to resell but clearly where you've got people with huge amounts of money that th- they need to make the best choices they can about what to invest in and, and a bit like houses you know art like bricks and mortar has proven to be a very effective investment for some people at the right level but it's it's a hugely difficult market to 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 play Mary Alice, do you think that these big sales then make a difference to the art world or do they just make a difference to the art market? 
they they it is there is a connection clearly because the the market is part of the infrastructure around which artists exist but they aren't in control of the market i mean it's sort of fascinating speaking to so many artists over the years that actually once the work has left their control once it's been sold they don't they and even before that, they don't really feel that connected with the market at all. So I think most artists will tell you that they couldn't care less about what was going on in, in the auction room and in the sale rooms because it's sort of it's not their world. It's being run by other people for other, you know, motivated by other things. And what matters to them is the, the is the creation of the work in the first place. And um, you know, I, I think that they're connected, but I'm not sure that the sale rooms and the fairs are really dictating the future of, of art at least i hope they're not but they're a necessary part of the way that the arts economy works arts and culture account for a sixth of jobs in london and 80 percent of the city's tourism it's also very important across the whole of the uk but you're right in that we still seem to be very disconnected from arts and culture and see it as something that's quite highbrow and exclusive why do you think that that is? And, and do you think that we struggle to see art as a profession, perhaps, compared to other European countries? I think, you know, a uh, challenge for art is it's quite often hard to grasp. It's difficult to appreciate art. I mean, of course, everybody can appreciate a beautiful painting by a cow in the field. But quite often to understand and to appreciate art it's, uh, it's a challenge. It's also about making life a little bit more difficult than it has to be. So I think, you know, that's one reason why art is not more integrated in society. But still, I think the good news is that it's getting more and more integrated in the daily lives. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's true that um, our education system and uh, the way in which uh, people understand the role of artists in society has not been through a very good time in recent years. I think actually the experience of the COVID pandemic has been quite interesting in in creating um, a, a more sensitive society that says actually we do care about artists and we do care about culture and 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 the opportunity to uh, experience creativity when that was all stripped away by covid i think suddenly there was a bit of a resurgence and a recognition that artists have an important role to play and i you know i i i hope that uh, we'll begin to see changes in our education system um uh, that really reinforce the importance of becoming an artist whether that's a visual artist or any other creative profession um they are essential to 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 a, a healthy culture and uh uh, we will be a very uh, much poorer nation if we if we didn't have more artists, and I, I hope that many more of them will will come through in in the years ahead. Mary Alice Stack, Alan Kager, thank you very much for speaking to me today. Thank you. Thank you, listeners. Remember, there's a new bunker daily every Wednesday, Thursday, and Sunday. With start your week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays, and the culture bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can also back us on Patreon. Just see our social media for details. This is Yelena Sofronovic signing out of The Bunker. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Bunker Daily was written and presented by Yelena Sofronievich. The producers, Jacob Archbold and Alex Reese. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison and theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.